Let's all stand together. Romans chapter 6. Romans in chapter 6. It's been a few weeks since we've been in this book together. Glad to be back in it tonight. Hopefully next Sunday night as well. But uh, beginning here, the sixth chapter of Romans. Let's look at that first verse together. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? It's a question that he knew many people were going to ask based on the previous five chapters. Here's his answer in verse 2. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. We look here at these first four verses of chapter 6 tonight. How dead men should live. How dead men should live. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. God, we thank you, Lord, for the book of Romans and all that we've uh, been able to study in it. And God, I thank you tonight to know that I'm saved. And thank you tonight that uh, of all that you made possible for all of us, Lord, to have an opportunity to put our, our faith in you for salvation. And Lord, we're here tonight aware it's nothing we could do. We're unrighteous without you. But I'm thankful, Lord, that you've justified us in your sight through the blood of your son, Jesus. Well, bless us tonight. Be with this message in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Finished five chapters here in Romans, and as we look at this book tonight and think about what we've already studied, uh, we should read this book and, and, and think back on these last five chapters with no doubt that all men and women are sinners. In understanding we are sinners, we know without him we cannot be seen as righteous. There's nothing we can do to attain righteousness, nothing we can do to be righteous in the sight of God on our own. There's only one way to be saved through Jesus Christ. And we know when someone places their faith and trust in Jesus, they are given the gift of eternal life. But as we look at these, especially as we get in there in chapter 1 and chapter 2, we, it was very clear to us that the human race is doomed. The curse of sin is on their life. Because of sin, they can't reach heaven on their own. And if, if they are left to themselves, there's nothing they could ever do to be with God in heaven one day. I'm thankful for the verse we're going to find here at the end of this chapter, but whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anybody that calls on Jesus Christ for salvation is saved from that doom and is given a new life in Christ. And as we begin this chapter, there's a, a new pace here now, a kind of a change in, in the topic and, and in the direction as, as we're looking here. And beginning in chapter 6, Paul is going to use the next three chapters telling us how this new life is lived. Now that the, our sin problem is taken care of, the blood of Jesus has covered that, we are justified in the sight of God, we have a new life in him, if you are saved, what does that look like? How should we operate as Christians with that new life? And we look at our world tonight, and we look at many churches, we look at many people that would say, I'm a Christian, and many people that would say that they are a Christian have that new life but don't seem to know how to live the new life. And we're given here in this text detailed instruction as we begin on this topic tonight of a new life in Christ. And I want to encourage you and tell you the first thing tonight we need to understand if you are saved is that you are dead. That's the first point, you are dead. If you are saved, you are dead to sin. We look there in verse 1. What shall we say then? 
Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So verse 1, he proposed this question. And like we've gotten accustomed to in the book of Romans, we've seen him do this already several times in the book of Romans. Paul expected, as they would read this letter, the church in Rome, to have certain arguments that they would bring back to him. He was giving this doctrine to them, the truth of God to them, and as these things were presented, he knew that these smart people, uh, some of them being Jews, some of them just just being Romans and and having all these teachings and and thoughts already on on these certain things, he expected certain questions to be raised, so he beat them to the punch there in verse 1. He said, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And this argument that he's presenting is, is based off of what we just finished there in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20 and 21. What does he say? Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So where my sin abounded and God's grace abounded more, very much more, and it could not be matched, And no matter how much I sin, God's grace is still enough to keep me and to save me. So these people would hear those verses and think, if that's the case, if I'm saved, why not just go do what I want to do? Why not just live live in sin and I know I'm still going to heaven and everything is going to be okay. I'm, I'm, I'm living in pleasure and one day I'll be with Jesus. I don't have to have to be punished by hell. Now we talked about a couple weeks ago. A sinner that is under this mountain of sin. And before you were saved, that, that's what it possibly felt like. And, and that's what was against us. There's nothing we could do to, to conquer that on our own. But where that sin abounded, where that mountain covered us, where that great burden was there, grace did much more abound. And in Jesus, that same sinner that was under that mountain of sin, that curse of sin, crushed by it, is able to stand up high on a mountain of grace. And what he expected to be argued here is if that grace is there, then can't we just sin more and enjoy more grace? And as as we're sitting here in Sunday night church tonight, that's kind of, we understand the, the question, but it's also kind of a silly thought, isn't it? We know what we should do. We know what the Christian life is like. We know uh, how miserable and how far from God we will feel if we do live in sin. But it's a philosophy that many Christians live by. Many people know they're saved. They understand their salvation is eternal. They know that that is secure. Nothing can change that. Nothing can take it away. And because of that, they live below God's standard. Knowing that whenever they feel too bad about it, they can repent of it, confess it, and and get back in good standing with God, and then go through that same cycle over and over again. But I can tell you tonight, as we look in the Word of God, this is not what God intended for you. It's not what God intended for anyone that is saved. And if there's someone tonight caught in that mindset, your actions say one of two things about you. First of all, there's a possibility that that person that lives that way and continues to sin, thinking that grace uh, is going to abound and it's just okay to do what they want, quite possibly they've never really been saved. And the second thing, it might just say something about a Christian that they don't really care what their life says about Jesus. Both of those scenarios for any individual is a dangerous mindset to be in. If you're not saved, you're in danger of hell. If you are saved and you are continuing in sin, you you are standing in a position to face the chastisement of God. So that's the question presented. He asked the question in verse 1, what was the answer? Shall we continue in sin? What's the two words? God forbid. 
No way. Turn to First um, John chapter two. First John chapter two. Because the grace of God covers us, should we continue to sin, we look in the word of God, we find the answer here, God forbid. In 1 John, we are told and instructed that Christians ought not to sin. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. I, might, I probably should turn there with you, shouldn't I? All right, he says there, my little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man say, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's what he says there in verse 1 and 2. We ought not to sin. We ought not to find ourselves in a position to continue to feed the flesh and to, and to live in sin. Even with the fact of Christ's advocacy on our account. The, the Heavenly Father assuring us of salvation. Even with the confidence that when we sin, we are not going to be lost. Once you think of tonight, I think anybody that has a car has car insurance, right? You understand that car insurance is there to protect you from what you could do to others, the damage, the liability, all those things. It's there for a reason. Now, since you have insurance, uh, I don't know if any of you tonight have, are intending to go crash your car into something. Is that, that's, that's not really how we, what we want to do, right? That's, that's not what that car insurance is for. It's there to protect you, there to keep you safe. They're there to take care of, of the great burden that may come if you cause a lot of damage. The grace of God is there to keep us. The grace of God is there as to ensure us that even though we may fail, God will never fail us and will never let us go. We can never be plucked out of his hand. But the intention of every believer should be not to sin. This, this message is taught again throughout the first epistle of John. We, we, we look in verse 6 here. Look there. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. If you're in Christ, if you're saved, you ought to walk like Christ would have you to walk. There's going to be some preachers that may preach or say that real Christians will live righteous and those who fail to live righteously are not saved. That is not true. And if anybody ever preaches that or says that, they are wrong. They are taking the word of God out of context. They're not speaking truthfully. They've misunderstood the whole book there, 1 John. We know tonight what we're commanded to do. We're going to get there in just a little bit. But believers will not live righteously automatically. We understand tonight we ought to live a certain way. But that, that word ought, it carries with it some doubt as to whether the Christian will do what he ought to do. We understand tonight the Holy Spirit's living within us. He's going, everything is there available to you to have victory and to live right in the sight of God. We ought to do that. We ought to depend on him. But just because we ought to do something doesn't mean we will do it. No. The intention of that word ought is, is that more of a moral obligation. You have an obligation as a Christian to live a certain way. But ought does not mean will. It implies that we can. It's possible. We ought to do it. We would, we would, you would never say that somebody ought to do something that they cannot do, would you? As we get back to our text tonight, Romans chapter 6 and verse 2. 
How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Paul's answer to this argument is clear. If we are indeed dead to sin, how can we, why should we live in sin? And he uses death as an analogy to the Christian life. If you're saved tonight, say amen. If you are saved tonight, you are more alive than you've ever been. Okay? But at the same time, you died. We understand tonight, when death comes to a physical body, there are certain changes that take place in that body, right? If someone dies, they, the desires they have are no longer there in that body, okay? You with me? That, that need for water, if someone's dead, is no longer there. The need for food is no longer there. The temperature in the auditorium would no longer matter to that person. If, if someone dies that was an alcoholic, there's not that need for that drink anymore. If someone was addicted to drugs, if, they, if they're dead, there's no need for the drug anymore. Death brings with it certain, limitation, certain limitations for the person that is dead. As we are dead in sin tonight, that's what it should be like for the Christian. The moment you put your faith and trust in Christ, faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, you died to sin. When you were saved, you died to that sin. But the difference is between us and a dead person, the old nature, the flesh is still there, and the flesh still wants what it wants. Just, just, just because you've been saved, it doesn't change what the flesh wants. The old nature will not change until it dies at the end of these physical lives. But when you were saved, a great change took place. And as he's talking about you being dead to sin, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you became a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You, were, you are now dead to the things that once held you captive. That hold that sin had on you, that nothing could change, you have died to that. And there is a new opportunity and ought in your life to do right. There's a new man inside that physical body that is dead to sin. Now the old man still wants it, the flesh still wants it, but the new man doesn't want it. Many people have a hard time grasping that because it seems like uh, even after you're saved, you want sin. And sometimes it feels like you want that more than you ever have. Can I tell you tonight, the reason you may feel that way is because now the Spirit of God lives within you and there's a struggle going on. There's a spiritual battle happening in your life. And so you're not as happy as you were before you were saved in terms of that, that sin, okay? And when you want it, you're convicted about it. You feel guilty about it. You, you're trying to fight that. So it's something that is noticeable to the new Christian. But the secret is tonight, the reality of our dying to sin is found in verse 11 of chapter 6. We're, we're going to look at it just a little bit here tonight. We'll be back here to it uh, in, a, in a few weeks. It says there, likewise, verse 11, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's the secret. We, the Bible tells us we are dead to sin. So what we need to do is reckon ourselves dead to sin. That word, that word reckon there means to calculate. To add up all the evidence, we're here in the sixth chapter of the book of Romans. We have all these things in front of us. We understand we are righteous in the sight of God. We understand the Holy Spirit dwells within us. We, we, are, we have been told we are dead to sin. So what we need to do is have faith in what the word of God says and reckon ourselves, calculate ourselves dead to it. Believe what he says, trust it, and act on it. 
God is there to help you, but God will not make you do right. So what you need to do today is actively accept the fact that you have died to sin and no longer in bondage to it. And understanding you're no longer in bondage to it, you do not have to sin, choose what's right. God puts this responsibility on the shoulder of a Christian. But he's given you everything you need to see it come to pass. If he hadn't, he wouldn't say we ought to. So first thing we need to do, understand, accept the reality of your passing. Accept tonight you are dead to sin. Second thing, your death puts you into a certain position. As we get here into verse 3, we're going we're to find out our, that death to sin put, has put you in a certain position. There's a placement there. Verse 3, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So when you receive Jesus, what this verse is saying, when you receive Jesus, you are baptized into him, and as a result, you are baptized into his death. Right now, we're, this is not talking about water baptism. It's talking about the baptism of the Spirit. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We have a lot of, of passages to look at here tonight before we're done. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. No matter what your previous religion is, no matter what your race is, no matter what your gender is, you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are baptized into one spirit. You are part of the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. And as we look at believer's baptism, that is a picture of the event that took place the moment you were saved. What Paul is trying to tell us here is that when you got saved, you were placed in Jesus. Right now, if you are saved, you are in Christ. You are in Christ tonight. If you, if you take notes, Colossians 3 verse 3 says, For you are dead... And your life is hid with Christ in God. Because you're saved, you're hid in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5 says, Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Because you're saved, you are now in Christ. And, 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 and what is placed, and you are placed in him by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And then there's a participation that takes place here. Paul tells us that because we are placed in Christ, we are also placed into his death and into his resurrection. So it, as, as we're looking at this text tonight, if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, the moment Jesus died on the cross, all people who have placed their faith in him died also. By some extraordinary miracle of God, you're taken back some 2,000 years ago and placed on the cross. When he died, you died. And that is why you can have victory over sin in your life. Every, every saved man, every saved woman, every saved boy, every saved girl is dead to sin. But the reason we have so much trouble with this, and the reason that many Christians are, held captive, are still falling to sin over and over again is because we haven't accepted the fact that it no longer holds us captive. We, 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 we aren't accepting the fact that we have died to it. And again, the solution to the problem is found in verse 11. What do we need to do? Reckon ourselves to be dead to sin. 
understand the facts and accept it. Because this is what God says, this is true for me. The first thing tonight, you're dead. Second thing, your death puts you in a certain position. And the last thing tonight, your death brings a certain potential. We look there at the end of verse 4. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. You've died to sin, and as you died with Christ, when he died, you, you then raised with Christ as he rose. It's an awesome thought. Not only did you die with him on the cross when he died, but when he rose from the dead, you rose also. Not too long ago, we looked at Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It says, wherefore, as by one man, that's Adam, sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. We understood because of what Adam did, at the moment he sinned, all the human race to ever follow him was a participant in that and affected by it, the curse of sin is there. So when that first Adam sinned, we became sinners. But just as we were in Adam, we were in Jesus when he died and rose from the dead. And that, that is why Jesus told Nicodemus that he needed to be born again. We look in John chapter 3, Jesus looked at Nicodemus and said, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Because he died, we're dead to sin. Because he lives, we're alive to God and the things of God. And here's a possibility for us. Because you are dead to sin and alive in Jesus, you can walk in a way that is consistent with the new life. We receive commands from God. We can look throughout the whole Bible. And, and find verses, and maybe look here in verse 4, we are supposed to walk in newness of life. We are no longer supposed to be doing the things we were doing before salvation. We now need to be doing what it is that Jesus wants us to do. And it's possible for a few different reasons. When, you, when you've been raised to walk in newness of life, the first thing we understand is we received a new nature. We can look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. It says, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Because you've been saved, there's a new nature, there's new desires, there's, there's, there's a new uh, plan in the heart of the Christian, a, a desire in the life of a Christian to please God with their life, to live according to his word. There's a new nature there. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, For who hath known the mind of the Lord that... He may instruct them, but we have the mind of Christ. Isn't that an awesome thing? God has, has changed your, not only your heart, but changed your mind to want different things than you wanted before. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. A lot of digging here, a lot of verses we're going to put together to understand this. First four verses of this chapter. You're a new man. First, uh, Colossians chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints. That is there because... They're a new person, right? Verse 5. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you, 
as it was in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it does also in you since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, did not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with knowledge of his will, and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Verse 10, here it is. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He spoke to the church of Colossae, or he wrote to them, the moment they were saved, a new love entered their life. They felt differently about each other than they had before. They wanted to please God with their life. And then what did he do? He wanted to train them to do what it is God wanted them to do. He wanted them to be filled with the knowledge of the will of God. He needed them to understand what that was, what the Christian life looks like, to have wisdom and spiritual understanding. He, and he wanted that so they could walk worthy of the Lord. It's possible for them. It's possible for these people that once lived for themselves and, and lived contrary to what God wanted to then walk worthy of the Lord and to all pleasing and not only walk worthy but then be fruitful. So it's possible for every saved individual to have that same life. It's possible for every Christian, for every single one of you here tonight that are saved, to walk worthy of the Lord. But with all of those things being true, we get back to it again. Why do we still struggle so often to do right? Why are there so many Christians with strongholds? Why are there so many Christians that don't want to have that certain addiction they have or don't want to give into the lust of the flesh like they have and don't want to uh, treat people the way they do. They, they desire something different, but why does it still happen? Why do they keep falling back into the same rut over and over again? Why are many Christians' lives ruined by sin? Why do so many fall? Because even though you have a new nature, your body still houses two natures. You, you have this, the, the new... Um, divine nature that God has given you but your flesh is still there your, your flesh still sometimes fights what the spirit is doing we understand what the Bible says in Galatians chapter 5 the flesh lusted against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh there's going to be many battles I think all of us in here tonight understand that there's going to be temptations there's going to be battles the Bible tells us there's spiritual warfare we've covered that quite a bit as of late but here's what we need to do Understand the battles there. Understand what the flesh is going to want, but then reckon yourself dead to that sin. Reckon yourself to, to know tonight the Spirit of God dwells within you and can enable you to have victory over whatever that is. Calculate the facts and trust God. Because your body belongs to the Lord now. And that former occupant is now dead to sin. The Holy Spirit needs to have free reign to do what he desires to do in each and every one of us. You know, from God's perspective, as we, as we look here, it's as if you've been literally raised from the dead. The old life is gone, and now the appropriate thing is for you to walk every day in newness of life. To walk every day for a different purpose than we walked without Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 14. 
For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. Verse 15, and that he died for all, that they which live not henceforth live unto themselves. The opportunity is still there. The flesh is still there. There's a, there's a choice you have to make whether you're going to do that or not. Don't live unto yourself, the next part, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. You know what he's saying there? We, we, we no longer are living for self. We no longer are trying to please the old man, the flesh. Now we've, we, he's, we've said he's dead to us. We're living for the one who died for us. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The love of Christ should have such a hold on you. And, and we understand what's available to us through the Spirit of God that those old desires we've put away. That old man we don't want to please, that old, that old flesh we do not want to feed. What we want to do is now live in, for this new life, this newness of life that is there. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. If he tells us to seek those things which are above, that still means there's another choice, doesn't it? Yeah. We're saying this a million different ways tonight, but I want this point to get across. The, the flesh still wants what it wants. Your flesh is still going to want to please itself and, and give into the certain lust and certain things that are there. It's always going to want those things. But the difference now is you've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. The Holy Spirit lives within you, and we have a choice to make whether we give into the flesh or we seek what's above. Whether we give into the old man or we live, walk in that newness of life because you've been given the opportunity and it's something that you ought to do. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. Why? He says it again in Colossians 3, verse 3. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Pretty awesome. You're dead. If you're saved, you're dead to sin. So what do you do? A little recap for you, okay? And we're done. First thing, if you write things down, write this down. Do not assume God's grace gives permission to sin. That's the first thing. How many, how many times has your flesh tried to negotiate with the spirit in your heart? You know you're not supposed to do something. You know it's bad. You know what, what happens when you do it. But your flesh really wants it. And you go, one more time, I'll ask forgiveness. I'll get back to normal tomorrow. Anybody there? Never happened? Grace does not excuse sloppy living. God is committed to you being holy. God has given you everything you need to please him. And if God is committed and has given you everything you need to make it possible, let's just choose to do what he wants you to do. Do not assume God's grace gives permission to sin. Second thing, if you've trusted Christ, you're a new creature. Make a distinct break with your past life and declare it publicly. Becoming a Christian should dictate we burn all the bridges to sin. If you're a Christian, it should dictate that that old life is over. If, if there's people in here that have habits that are not pleasing to God, I want to encourage you to get rid of them. If there's certain lusts that you continue to give to or certain things in your possession that you know is a sin against God, destroy them, get rid of them, have somebody help you get rid of them, cut that old life off. 
if going to a certain place may tempt you to look at things you shouldn't or to drink something you shouldn't or to uh, do some sort of act that you know is not pleasing to God, don't go to those places. Cut that life off. Burn the bridges to the past life. You know, if we were to look in, in Acts chapter 19, verse 19, there's an example set there by the new believers in Ephesus. You know, the Bible says they, they burned, they, they calculated it, 50,000 days of, of wages worth of magic books. Their old life, 50,000 50, days of wages, they burned that much money's worth of stuff because they knew if it was still there, they might fall back. Cut it off, get rid of it. Now, there was a, a group of tourists that were in Europe that were visiting this beautiful village, as, as there are, I hope, one day to go there and be able to see some of those things. And as they went to this village, they walked up to this old man. They found out he spoke some English, and they looked at him, and they are interested in history. And they said, were there any great men born in this village? And they wanted to know if anybody came out of there that did something or that they may have read about in history. They said, were any great men born in this village? And he looked at them, and he said, nope, only babies. <laughs> now, every person that is a born-again Christian started a new life as a babe in Christ. No, no great Christians were happen immediately the moment after salvation. So whether that new convert is 65 or 5, there's a point of growth that needs to take place from that moment forward. A, a, a baby Christian is someone who's, uh, who's, been, who's been saved for 40 years and, and never, never looked to the Bible, never grown in the Lord. What a shame that would be. For someone to have a new life in Christ and never grow in him, never mature, never get biblical wisdom, never grow in their relationship with God. And until we as Christians learn to get into the meat of the word of God ourselves, and as newborn babies desire this and show me of the word, we will not grow. And we'll remain a baby Christian the rest of our life. It's God's will for every Christian to grow. So cut the old life off, move forward for Christ. The third thing, and this will help you, meditate often on your union with Christ and what that means. If you're saved, you're now hidden Christ. Think about that and act accordingly. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he wrote about the slaves who were freed by Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War. If you read the Emancipation Proclamation, it was available, it was Stated, it was made public that all slaves were to be made free. But many of the older slaves had not known any other life, and they were nervous about what that may look like. And they were born slaves. They lived all their lives under a certain master, but in a sense, they all died to slavery the moment that Emancipation Proclamation was declared. They were free. But even though they were declared free, many of them would, would testify to the fact that they didn't feel free. If they remained in the town that they had been in for so many years under their master, whenever they would see him coming, they may have shook in fear a little bit or even obeyed him if he asked them to do something. But they didn't have to do that. Because the power over those, those people was broken. There was a new life. If you are saved in Christ, the moment you put your faith and trust in him, you die to sin. You no longer have to live under its power. When that temptation comes it, that you've always had in your life, and it will, you, you don't have to fall. You don't have to give in. You don't have to, to, to feed those lusts. 
You're no longer under the power of that sin. You don't have to obey it because you've been raised up in Christ to walk in newness of life. Remember your position. Reckon it to be true. Yield to the Spirit of God. Allow God's to God to live the life he wants you to live through you. Your union with Christ means something. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Verse 4. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also, what's that word? Should walk in newness of life. We know what we should do. Let's do it. Every head bowed, every eye closed.